This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 37. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of real estate, and we're going to approach it from two different sides. So first, we'll talk about real estate as an investment. So this is more if you're ever thought of investing in a property and renting it out. Now, if you've listened to past episodes of the show, then you know that it can actually be really hard to get the numbers to work when buying a home and trying to rent it out as an investment. And so today's expert is going to share some strategies with us that she uses to actually successfully invest and make the numbers work despite the high prices of real estate that we've been seeing. Next, we'll shift focus a bit and talk all about the different home buying tips and expensive mistakes that you can avoid when buying a home for yourself. And even if you've bought a home in the past, I still recommend that you tune in as the real estate market has likely changed since the last time you bought a home. And today's guest shares some up-to-date money-saving tips and ways to protect yourself when you're buying a home, whether it's for personal use or whether it's as an investment. Today, I'm excited to welcome our sponsor, Paytm, which is a free app that helps you manage all your bills in one place. Now, when I first heard of them, I thought, but I can already do that with my bank, so what's the big deal? Well, with Paytm, they basically pay you to pay your bills. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you get up to 3% cash back on bills that you pay through their app. And you can even get as high as 5% cash back on certain purchases. Now, there's no bank in Canada that is giving out that much when you pay your bills. Usually you get nothing when you pay your bills through the bank. What's also unique is that Paytm lets you pay bills that don't normally accept credit cards. Now, this is a big deal for me because while you may have a great credit card, you typically can't use it to pay for things like property tax and utilities. And if you're a student or have kids in college or university, you typically can't use your credit cards to pay the tuition and get the credit card reward points or you know cash back on those credit cards because those places just don't accept credit cards. So I've been getting 0% cash back on bills for years. And with Paytm, you can actually get up to 3% cash back on those bills too. And since these are larger bills that you're paying all the time, probably forever if we're talking about paying utilities and property taxes, the free money that you get through the cash back really starts to add up. So basically with the Paytm app, you're getting the ability to manage all your bill payments in one place. You're getting reminders when those bills are due and you get cash back on those bills, even on bills that typically don't give you any rewards for when you pay them. So as a sponsor of this show, Paytm is giving away $10 cash back to all Build Wealth Canada listeners when they make their first bill payment. So to get that, just download the Paytm app from the Apple App Store or Google Play and just use the promo code BUILDWEALTH, all lowercase, all one word, when paying your first bill. And when you do that, you'll instantly get $10 cash back on that bill. So the promo code again is build wealth, all lowercase and no spaces to get the $10 cash back for free. You can also go to paytm.ca and download the app from there, whether you're an Apple or Android user. All right. So a big thank you to Paytm for supporting Build Wealth Canada. And now let's get onto the show. All right, Limor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so it's great to have you here. And really just to kick things off for anyone that hasn't really heard of you yet, can you give us a little bit more info about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a self-proclaimed money nerd, as I know you are as well. Um, I've always been really fascinated with money. And when I graduated from university, I went right into the banking industry where I spent 10 years working for some of Canada's largest banks, essentially 
promoting and marketing financial products. So it really gave me a good sense of how banks make money, but also how customers make mistakes. And then about four and a half years ago, I started getting really heavily involved in real estate investing, uh, reading lots of books and getting super involved. And once I got started with real estate, I was I was addicted pretty quickly. And with my investments there, while I really didn't have any plans to leave the corporate world, um, within two and a half years, I was able to leave my corporate job. And then since then, I've really been focusing on empowering people to be what I call financially fabulous over on my website, leemore.money. I put out content there and essentially helping people to understand the basics of personal finance as well as real estate investing. So I, I have the privilege of teaching investment and real estate investing um, in three-day seminars across Canada. Yeah, so that's really interesting because I, I would think that being in the banking industry, you would have you would have been always, you're always surrounded by basically you know different types of investing right like you're probably surrounded by you know mutual funds all the time and things like that so how did you kind of how did that light bulb go off in your head about hey maybe I should get into real estate investing when you're kind of surrounded in, in this other world basically yeah and I mean it was very humbling when I first started learning about real estate because I thought I knew a lot about money so really funny I started reading a whole bunch of books about real estate you know the one that we've all read is Rich Dad Poor Dad and I found myself in a three-day seminar where basically I sat in the front row with my jaw on the ground for the entire three days being like holy crap like how come no one has ever taught this to me Mm -hmm. so while I thought I knew a lot about different investments, and you know I definitely do in some capacity, I wasn't exposed to real estate, and the banking industry doesn't necessarily teach us about investing opportunities in the real estate world. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So did you just kind of get intrigued by it, and then you kind of started going down the, the the rabbit hole, and then reading more and more and more, and then eventually you're like, oh, I got to get into this. Is that kind of what yeah, happened? Yeah. I'm- that's that's barely a big part of it, but you know there was also motivation for me. I really wanted to generate passive income. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we're all working pretty hard, and you know I was just kind of thinking like, how do I have more choices in my life? Um, whether that's career wise or with a family. You know I was working corporate, lots of hours round the clock, and while I was loving what I was doing, I was like, do I always want to work these kinds of crazy hours? And I thought generating passive income would give me a lot more options for my future. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that kind of yeah really intrigued me about your bio is that you did say that you know in two and a half years basically you were able to leave the corporate world and then uh, basically just through investing in real estate you were able to pay for all your basically pay for your life, pay for your expenses. So you're able to make kind of a full transition from a regular corporate job to just working on real estate, you know, full time in just two and a half years, which is obviously really really impressive. How did you pull this off? I'm really intrigued about this because I remember you know when. I used to be really, really into real estate. Like we still own a rental property today. And I remember just mm. well, on my spreadsheets doing the math and saying, <laughs> okay, uh, you know, if we, like we're in our current market, if I start investing in it, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we might get like $100 positive, you know, cash flow a month per door, right? Like like that's all that it was, uh, kind of, you know, best case scenario. And I'm, yeah. so, so I'm like, how can you possibly, like, yeah, the, the property is appreciating. So you're making kind of a bulk of your money that way. You're, you're leveraged, obviously. So you're making, you know, you're, you're, that's kind of where the nice gains are coming from. But from a cash flow perspective, it, it's a relatively small amount, especially compared to like a regular, you know, full-time corporate job. So, I mean, how, how did you make it work? I'm ridiculously curious. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question. Um, and let me start off by saying that when I first started my journey in real estate and I attended that seminar, I was like, all these strategies that we're learning were far more advanced than just 
buy a single family home, put a tenant in and hope that they pay the rent on time. And that's kind of where you get in this scenario where you're like, okay, maybe it cash flows a hundred dollars a month. Right. Um, but when you get into far more advanced strategies, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today, things are really different. So when I started, I actually spent $20,000 on real estate investing classes, and I've spent a lot more than that now at this point, um, really working with mentors in the industry. So I think the first part is that I got a proper education about how to invest in real estate properly. I wasn't kind of figuring out as I go. I wasn't, as I like to call it, at the school of hard knocks. And through the classes and the education that I took, I got a lot of systems and templates and I got introduced to a lot of professionals who are savvy and working with investors that really opened a lot of doors for me. Also, when it came to investing, um, you know, even from very early on, I wasn't necessarily always using my own money. So, you know, typically when you think about you're going to buy a rental property, you're like, okay, how much money do I have saved up? Can I put that as a down payment? And then if you're cash flowing 100 or two or whatever it is a month, you're kind of maxed out. Right. But when it comes to leveraging other people, working with lots of different joint venture partners, I am not limited by the amount of money that I've saved in my account or how many mortgages I'm going to qualify for. So that allowed me to exponentially grow my portfolio a lot faster than if I was trying to save money from my corporate job and then put that into the down payment. And then, you know, a combination of the variety of strategies and all of the properties and the investing that I do is actually inside of corporations that I have set up, which also gives me a benefit of, you know, paying lower taxes. So kind of all of those pieces put together is how things started to snowball in a positive way really quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that, that's that's uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so yeah, what you're describing was basically what I was, you know, when I was doing all the analysis, that's pretty much what it was, was, okay, single family home, I'm able to, you know, let's say take this much equity out of my house to help with, you know, turning a new property into a rental property, you know, that kind of a thing. And yeah, I, I felt yeah. like, yeah, I'm doing single family, I'm too scared to go multi-unit. So because it's, you know, at that point, you know, you're dealing with, uh, you know, seven figure sums generally, right? So yeah. it's, uh, so I remember for me, I was like, oh, this is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the pickle I found myself in because I'm like, okay, I, like we have one rental. And I was like, okay, I want to buy more. But okay, if it's really hard to make things to, to actually make it cash flow positive, and even totally. if, especially when you're kind of operating on a smaller scale where you're just doing single family homes and then it's like, okay, so the solution is go multi-unit like, or, you know, or student housing, things like that. And then it's like, but now you're not dealing with small money anymore. Well, small. And by small, I mean like, you know, only a few hundred thousand dollars, yeah. <laughs> which is still well, not small. Right. But then it's like, oh, now I have to throw in like a million and that's terrifying for a lot of people. So for sure. Yeah. And also when you're doing it that way where you've got a single family home, I mean, you have one massive maintenance that you weren't expecting expecting oh, yeah. you know, thing dies the roof there's an issue like all of a sudden it wipes out all of your cash flow for like the entire year and then you're sort of hoping and praying that the property appreciates like right. no investment on your side or mine should ever be about like hoping and praying that you make money <laughs> yeah and i find the thing that too because I, I used to read about this italian and i remember the one thing that really got me uh, I was like thinking like, oh, multi-unit would be so nice was the whole kind of vacancy rate issue, right? Where where if you own a single family home, it's just one tenant. So if they decide to leave, all of a sudden your vacancy rate is 100%. Uh, so, you go, you're, so you're either zero or 100% in terms of how <laughs> vacant your property is, you know, compared to like an apartment building, right? Where it's like, okay, a, a tenant leaves. So yeah, you've got a bit of a vacancy rate now for temporary time, but it's not 100% vacancy, right? It might be, right. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously... A, so so you can kind of, uh, from a cash flow perspective, it, it's much more stable, uh, I think, than just a single family where it's kind of like all or 
or nothing. Uh, but then that's the thing, right? Then it's like, are you willing to throw in a few million? And where do you get this few million? And so that's where your that's where your more advanced strategies come in. So I, 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 I made, that makes sense how you're able to kind of do it that way. And I guess kudos to your uh, salesmanship skills because I, uh, I mean, if you're able to get kind of if you're just kind of getting started and you're already able to get people to invest their money and buy properties with them, I mean, that's. Uh, you must be quite the uh, the marketer and salesperson, I think, too. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, obviously there's an element of that, but I yeah. think it's also really important to note that I was working with mentors and instructors in the industry who have many, many years of experience, massive portfolios, and they were helping me every single step of the way. So I had them reviewing the deals, helping me on the calls, um, you know, and oh, okay. like, when, when you've got that kind of support, it makes things go a lot faster. Also, when I'm using other people's money, which is most of the time, I'm even more cautious than my own money because, right. you know, this is somebody's really important investment and I'm enabling them to invest in real estate and get them stronger returns and more mm. uh, likely certain returns. But I take that very, very seriously. And I imagine things start snowballing too, right? Like once you pull off a few successful deals, either by yourself yes. or other people, then now you've got a portfolio when you can, when you're talking to a potential investor, you can show them, okay, here's what I did with the last three properties I did. We're doing, you know, now you can jump in and do something. We can, we're going to do something, the same thing with this next one. And then it's a much more easier thing as opposed to just, Hey, I'm, Decided to get in real estate. <laughs> Can I have some money? <laughs> hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. Can I spend your money and maybe not get it back to you? No, yeah, it's... yeah. So, so I get, but I, but it's yeah. So I, but I, so I'm like, how did you start off? Because that's always the hardest part. But the whole, yeah, like the mentor and the connection, the mentoring connections, that makes total sense. Um, yeah. Okay. No, that's uh, that's awesome. So yeah. So I mean, we're gonna talk. Uh, I know one of the things we're gonna talk a lot about today is not just real estate investing per se but also if you're looking to just buy a home for your own personal use just you know like a primary residence so you know definitely we'll we'll jump to that uh, in a moment but before getting into that I still want to pick your brain about one more investing thing because like I said I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff uh, yeah, that's and that, so in kind of when I was reading your bio before uh, you mentioned that you basically use all these different real estate investing strategies to be able to pull this off and, and to actually make it work. So some of the ones that I remember, you know, seeing is you know the rent to own, the hard money lending, RSP mortgages, wholesale, pre foreclosures, flipping. Uh, so those were kind of the ones that I saw you mentioned. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about some of the main ones that you use? That you know the main ones that you like. Kind of what are they? What are the pros and cons of them? Uh, you know, because because yeah, to me I find them very intriguing because it's it's like I said, it's, I found it's really hard to make it work with just kind of of the basic traditional, you know, oh, put some money down for the down payment, get a single family home and rent it. It's 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 so much tougher to do that. So how how did you do it with kind of these advanced strategies? Yeah. So I mean, I think it makes sense. I'm gonna I'll do a little bit of an explanation on two of them, and you know, feel free to ask questions because I know they're they're pretty new to you and probably some of the listeners as well. Um, the first one that I'm going to talk about is rent to owns, and the second one I'm going to talk about is RSP mortgages. So let's start over with rent to owns. So Basically, what I'm doing in this scenario is I start with a family whose credit is slightly bruised. So, you know, most people have no idea how to manage their credit. Maybe they've spent a little bit too much on their credit cards or they haven't paid their cell phone bills because they were mad at their provider or, you know, they've done a couple of things that doesn't necessarily make them horrible with their finances or horrible people, but their credit's not necessarily in great shape to be able to qualify for a mortgage. And um, essentially, they have to qualify for the program. But once I have this family that I'm going to be working with, I have them choose the house that they would like to own in the future. What I have them do is put down 
um, or provide a deposit that's called an option or an option consideration, which is typically in the range of three to four percent of the fair market value. So it's you know a decent investment on their part. And then, like I said, they choose the house, and I will buy it with investor money. Um, have the investor qualify for the mortgage, and then they move into the property. And so as a result of that, they end up paying a slightly higher rent uh, because they have the right or the privilege to live in a house right now that they are going to own in the future. So in many instances, it's a family. They want to be in a certain school district. Um, You know, they're not looking to move their family around. So they have the privilege now to live in this house that they are going to own in the future. They're allowed to paint it, which is very different to um, a straight up rental where you basically can't even hammer any nails in the walls. Um, You know, I encourage them to force appreciate the property. And basically, they take care of the maintenance. So up front, we're also going to agree on the future purchase price. And typically, the rent-to-own program is roughly three years because that's how long it takes typically to repair someone's credit. It can be two. It can be four, really just depending on their current situation. And so essentially, throughout that duration of time with paying a slightly higher rent, I'm saving part of the rent that I'm going to give back to them together with that initial option amount so that when they complete the program, call it in three years' time, when I give them back their option amount and I give them that little bit of rent that I've saved for them every single month, they've got enough for the down payment. So they have their down payment completely taken care of and throughout the three-year term, their main responsibility is to work with a credit specialist who I connect them with, you know, to help them to fix their credit. And usually it's a pretty straight, easy list of, you know, do's and don'ts. Um, And then they also take care of the property. So for me as an investor, the maintenance is actually pretty low. Mm-hmm. So let me just pause right there because it's kind of giving you a little bit of a mouthful. Yeah, no, that's really good. And so, so that you're not actually dealing with the property management side of it, which sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so they're responsible for that. And so actually the property management side, um, you know, for the ones that I have in Ontario, um, I will go out probably once every three months in the first year, probably once every six months in the second and third year. And it's basically like me on a Saturday afternoon sitting at the kitchen table, you know, we'll uh, bring some baked goods and we're talking about family and life. And it's really about kind of helping them because this mm-hmm. family, you know, would never have been able to qualify for a mortgage. They'd never be in a situation where they could pay off, you know, the mortgage in 25 years and be able to retire. And so it makes it a lot more of an investment in the family. But for me as an investor, you know, I'm benefiting in a couple of ways. One, they're paying the rent every single month and it's a bit of a higher rent. So I end up having stronger cash flow. Um, Also, I'm not going to have those maintenance costs because they're responsible for that. And, you know, by the rent covering the mortgage, I'm getting sort of pay down on the mortgage itself. But we're also predetermining upfront what the appreciation rate is going to be and what they're going to buy it out for in the three-year time frame. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens if? Oh, and I, I should clarify too. When I said all the property mm-hmm. management thing, you have to worry about. Well, I know probably like with property management, you just have to worry about the rent and make sure that you get it and all that kind of stuff. But I'm more so referring to kind of the maintenance, right? The, the kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. I mean, where you're not there. 2017. Their... They they just pay me online. Like nobody collects checks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah, but like you know, chasing someone down or whatever, like just all that. But yeah. um, but if you found the right tenant, you're not doing that. Uh, but yeah, like the main thing is, yeah, you don't have to go and fix the furnace or something you're saying because they're responsible for that. Just to clarify point, when they put in that initial option or the deposit, essentially, 
they're putting in, you know, if we're talking about a substantial property that's maybe three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars, like they're putting in a good fifteen thousand dollars that they only get back if they buy the house in the future. So they are very, very invested in this property and invested that this is also their financial future. So, you know, I like to say if they put in a fifteen thousand dollar deposit, they have fifteen thousand reasons why they're gonna pay the rent on time every single month and take care of the property. Gotcha. So, so obviously you're making money off the the rent. You're getting some better cash flow than you normally could by doing just a more of a traditional rental kind of agreement. Um, how and then on the sale of the property, do you make money on that side as well? How does that work? Yeah. So there's three ways that you make money. One, like you said, is the increased cash flow because they're paying slightly higher rent. So this is not like a hundred dollars a month, like your example before. I would say um, they're they're quite a bit higher than that from a cash flow perspective. Also, you've got the equity that's building when they pay down your mortgage, and then you're also determining upfront what the appreciation rate is going to be. And so, when I'm selling the property in three years' time, I'm selling it for more than I bought it. Mm-hmm. So when when I work on on these progr- programs and design it, I usually use an appreciation rate that is lower than what's happening in the marketplace. So that it gives the tenant buyers, that's what they're called, the people who are tenants now and buyers in the future, it gives them the opportunity to lock in now at a little bit of a lower rate than what we might see in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we try to have a win-win there. Obviously, you can't always guarantee that the market's going to appreciate, but, you know, especially with the kind of crazy appreciation rates and double digits that we've seen over the last few years, I mean, I use a much lower appreciation rate than that. But, you know, there are, in fact, times where it may not appreciate as high. And at that point, we kind of get together at the end of the program and say, have they done their part? And what can I do to make the concession? So I actually have one in Calgary that um, just finished up the three-year term this summer. And, you know, we've had a dip there. So we ended up lowering the price. But the returns for myself and the investor are still really significant and, and pretty pretty decent. Mm-hmm. And then what if it's the reverse? What if the property appreciated a lot more than you previously uh, hoped. I mean, are you then kind of losing out because they've they've already you have a contractual obligation to sell it to them at a much lower price? Yeah, I mean, I've had that scenario happen quite a few times, mm-hmm. um, and and I would say like I mean, contractually, I've said you know you get four percent appreciation if the market's done twenty four percent. Um, unless I come with, with a win-win scenario, I will sell it to them so they get the extra equity. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've had some instances where we basically said, okay, let's increase the purchase price by X amount of dollars and the amount that we're increasing it by, let's split it 60-40 or let's split it um, 70-30 where they're still getting the majority of the benefit. Okay. At the end of the day, I mean, it is a gamble um, in the sense that, like, I don't know that the market's going to appreciate that, but I'm, I'm really doing this twofold. Like, I want to make sure that my investments are growing at a significant rate, but I'm also really helping a family, which I think is a, mm-hmm. a pretty nice way to, to make money and make a difference in somebody else's life at the same time. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, have you, have people actually agreed to it? Have, I mean, contractually, they're able to buy it at a much lower price, but it's appreciated, let's say, you know, way, way more than what kind of either of you guys thought it would then and you approach them about that i mean do people actually say okay fine you can have some of that or do they say no because this is what a contract <laughs> is you know, too, too bad basically right like how 
How, yes. Yeah, so actually, yeah. the response has been really favorable because part of the way that I've done it, I've said, okay, if we're increasing the property, let's just say by $40,000, the sale price going up, they're going to get maybe 30000 and I'm going to get ten. Mm-hmm. And of the 30000 the way that it's been structured, I've been able to give them cash back at closing when they buy the property mm-hmm. so that, you know, they may end up with a higher uh, amount that they can put towards their down payment or, you know, they end up with cash that they can use to either renovate for their families, for their lives. And they're, they're supremely grateful. But, you know, in all those instances, I'm like, here's the option. You know, I'm going to honor the price that I said I was going to sell it to you at. I'm still making a lot of money in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we can all win together, people are generally uh, excited about that opportunity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I guess the incentive for them too, is that if they just you know, they, they can just do it through you. That's an easier process than saying, okay, uh, like, cause I guess the alternative is if they can somehow, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Cause I mean, it's easier to, to just kind of do it through you directly than for them to try to, uh, actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to. Yeah. So really, really they have the option to buy the property from me at the price yeah. and it's at a, at a lower price typically than the fair market value. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's because I've invested in them and they've invested in being part of the rent-to-own program. Right. Okay, sounds good. Uh, mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of it kind of from different angles and stuff. Yeah. Like no, kind, of, kind, of, kind of the worst case scenario for you where they're like, you know, the like, because, you know, we've had some ridiculous growth over the past while, right? So just uh, yeah. if that happens and then, then that wasn't factored into your model, kind of, you know, how how you can kind of salvage that and still kind of get the gains and such. But, uh, but no, yeah, no, that, sure. but no that, that, make, that makes sense. It's... Um, mm-hmm. So I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. And I I mean, on the rent to own program, I mean, I'm making double digit returns every year throughout the program. So, you know, there comes a point where it's like, I don't want to be greedy. I'm helping a family and I'm making money. Like it's already a a fantastic win-win for everybody. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. I guess because I'm thinking like, oh, opportunity cost, opportunity cost. So that's why that's why I'm so hung up on it. I'm like, wait a minute, but how can you, how can you, like, how can you, I guess that's why I'm like, stumbling here because I'm trying to think of how can how could the deal be structured to make it that you know you're able to take advantage of the appreciation if it's much more than what you thought uh, but like you said if you're making double digit growth anyway uh, you know they're happy you're happy uh, also if they're happy with the experience they could probably maybe refer you to some other people that and can, is exactly so, the point so and it's yeah. like you're not gonna nickel and dime over kind of these yeah, basically yeah you stick true to your contract they, they, they might get a nice big win but then they're more likely to give you referrals and things of that nature uh, and, you're, exactly. and it's not like you're losing money either so it's no nope, not even close yeah um, yeah okay no that, that makes sense that makes sense so I, I have this mind where like I'm always like how can this be how can this be optimized because that sounds like a big risk right especially if the, with the property values that, the way they've been going uh, yeah but I don't yeah. think that it's like it's a big risk in the sense that like I'm still making a lot of money <laughs> yeah. if, if the risk is like I can make an even even bigger pile of money yeah yeah and, that, and that's just the way my brain works, right? Like when I say risk, I'm like, I've got an opportunity cost. So it's just like extra profitability, not risk as in, oh, you're actually going to lose money because you're making yeah. money regardless. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, one of the strategies that I do. And like I said stuff. before, you know, when I am working with other investors, other people who are putting in the deposit, other people who are qualifying for the mortgage, there's no limit on how many of these I can do, right? It's right. not about me trying to save my own money and trying to qualify for more mortgages. Yeah. So that's a fun strategy. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, the other one that I was going to tell you a little bit about is RSP mortgages. And this is something that when I first learned about it, I was like, holy crap, like, how is this possible? So essentially, I mean, everybody knows when you have RSPs and you invest them, you have options like GICs, you've got stocks, you've got mutual funds, you've got a bunch of different options. But what most people don't know is that actually inside of your RSPs in a self-directed account, you can actually invest in in private mortgages. Now, this is something that the big five banks do not allow you to do. They used to, and I can only speculate to say that they don't allow you to do it anymore because you're the one who's actually making a lot of money, but that's totally my speculation. Um, so <laughs> That's usually how it works, though. Yeah, it's like, yeah, um, we, there's, yeah. They they are. Long enough. <laughs> <laughs> They're not earning, you know, their two and a half to three percent uh, mutual fund fee if you do that, right? So... There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, when you transfer your money to financial institutions such as Community Trust or Olympia Trust is a really big one in Western Canada, you actually have the ability to be a one-to-one lender where you are essentially lending your RSP money to a property or to like a borrower to be on property and you are essentially the mortgage holder. So you become registered on title and they pay you like the same way they pay their mortgage payment straight into your RSP every single month. So when I log into um, one of those banks, which I use, essentially the same way you would see when you log into your online banking and you may see like the stock symbol or whatever you're invested in, I actually see the addresses of the properties that I invest my money in. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing with this is that RSPs um, generate much stronger returns. Uh, the range, I would say, is anywhere from probably 6 to 18%, mm-hmm. depending on if you're in a first mortgage or a second mortgage. And typically, they're short term. So when you loan RSP money, and you can actually do this with any registered account, but RSPs is the most popular one, mm-hmm. is they're typically one year. So they're sort of short term investments. And when you lend money, um, you really want to start with like, how am I going to get it back as kind of the most important element. Um, so maybe I could give you an example to kind of try to bring this sure, to light sure. if that helps a little bit. Um, so second mortgages, I would say, are probably just a little bit more popular than first mortgages. And the general range of return that you would get on a second mortgage is probably anywhere from 12 to 16%. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to share a deal that I did with um, with you and, and some of the listeners. So um, basically, I was asked if I would be willing to lend $50,000 to a family who were in Mississauga. And so the timing was such that um, she was a teacher and she had her first child. So they're in their 30s. She had her first child in August before the school year started. And obviously, she's on maternity leave. She's not really making much from an income standpoint. And two months after the baby was born. So in early October, the husband lost his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so between October and June, cause I was introduced to them in June, they had racked up $40,000 of debt on their credit card, at 25% interest rate. Oh, now this stuff okay. happens, right? Like, Wow. It okay. Totally. Happened. So that was their situation. So they had $40,000 of debt at 25% interest, but they had racked up their debt because they made sure that they didn't miss a single one of their first mortgage payments. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
having a kid's expensive, you know. Um, and so that was a the situation they were in. So in June of that year, when I'd been introduced to them, he had just gotten a new job. So I'd seen his first pay stub. Um, and I knew that in August, a couple months later, she would be going back to work. And so, you know, maternity leave was ending and she was going to be going back to work. So I knew that they would both be in a situation where they would have their income coming back to them. And they also, at that point in time, had one year left on their five-year mortgage term. And I knew they had a lot of equity. So if I lent them $50,000, that coupled with their first mortgage, Mm -hmm. there was a 78% loan to value. So that basically means it was uh, 22% of the property of the fair, of the fair market value they actually had in equity. So there's Mm -hmm. quite a bit of equity there. So I lent them $50,000 from my RSPs at 15% interest, and they actually paid the interest up front, which is actually not that uncommon with RSP mortgages because essentially they wouldn't have to make a payment throughout the entire next year while they're kind of getting their finances back on track. Okay. So of the 50000 that I gave them, 7500 goes straight back into my RSP, and a year later, when they're both working, their mortgage is up for renewal, they collapse the first and second mortgage together, and then uh, pay me back the $50,000. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, in that scenario, I am in second position. So that would mean that if they were unable to pay their first mortgage, I would make payments on the first mortgage and step in and foreclose from the second position. Mm -hmm. So you essentially are a mortgage. The same way with your bank. If you stop paying your mortgage, the bank is going to step in and take your property. So it's it's the same kind of idea with this type of investing. Um, But when you're doing all your proper due diligence up front, Mm -hmm. you know what can happen. Um, You know know what your options are with the property afterwards. So, you know, for me, this one was in Mississauga. It was appreciated at a significant rate. I knew I could rent it out or I could renovate it or I could sell it. But, you know, I had a lot of peace of mind that I knew how they're going to be able to pay me back. I'm not in the business of taking houses away from people, but it enabled me for that year to have that $50,000 grow at 15% interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Gotcha. Interesting. That is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so sometimes people say to me, oh, well, I'm nervous to be in second position. Like, how would I handle that? And so I'm like, okay, well, you can do first position mortgages. So, mm-hmm. you know, another example, I did a first position mortgage on a duplex just outside of Ottawa. Um, and that one I lent just over $100,000. And the person who I was lending the money to, he was self-employed and a contractor. So he, that's why he was struggling to qualify right a mortgage. And his goal was to renovate this duplex and then sell it. But once I had given him the mortgage, it was just over 60% loan to value. So he had, you know, put in some of his own money to buy it as well as uh, to renovate the property. So I knew a ton of equity there. And Mm -hmm. it was a duplex that I would have been happy to acquire. Now, this gentleman made payments on a monthly basis. And um, the interest rate on that one was 11% return. So, Mm. you know, to be in first position at 11%, um, you know, is is really not not too shabby, right? Right, and it's a mortgage too, right? So it's not like I mean, it, it's paper. It's yeah, it's um, that's very yeah, it's very interesting. Hmm. It, so I guess the yeah, so it sounds great. Uh, it's very interesting. I guess the only thing, I guess my my only reluctance to to maybe do something like that is it. It sounds like it's a lot of work to structure these deals together. Uh, like if it's you know that's like in I guess the first example. Was it only a year that basically the whole thing took place? 
each deal is about a year. Yeah. 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 So like, so it sounds like a lot of, you know, work and due diligence to, str- I guess I'm comparing yeah. it to, to buying like an ETF, right? <laughs> where it's, uh, you know, or a stock or something, okay. right? So let like, me explain a little bit about how kind of that process works. Sure, so sure. typically I've got a network of mortgage brokers mm-hmm. who will reach out to me and say, here is the deal in mm-hmm. its entirety. Are you interested in it? So I do it all like each RSP deal like this that I do, I probably spend no more than two hours doing a bit of research on the area. What's fair market value? What's the rent? You know, I'll go into like Google street view to see what's there and what's in the area. I mm-hmm. sign everything digitally on my computer. And so the diligence is actually, uh, it's very important, but it's definitely not time consuming. This oh, okay. is a very okay. good thing, but I would say in order to be able to be in a position where I can make these decisions quickly and strategically, like I have to have a good real estate background. I have to be able to understand For like sure. in worst case scenario, if I acquire this property, like, is it, is going to be something I can handle. Do I know people who can help me through the process if something were to go uh, in an unexpected way? Right. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. That sounds a lot more reasonable. I guess when I'm thinking, like, I, I, I had this mental picture of you, you know, meeting with them and researching no, the property no, no, no. and checking their credits. You know, like all like this whole. All of that is done <laughs> for me by the mortgage broker. Oh, so okay. Okay. Get a package that says, "Here's their credit. I get to see their credit scores. I get to see the appraisal of the property. I get to see okay. any paperwork that I require. Um, it's all kind of emailed to me. I review it all." And if it's a deal I want to proceed with, then like off to the races I go. And, um, you know, the the financial institution is fantastic in that they manage all of the the payments every single month and, and they take care of all of those pieces. And I'm essentially registered on title as, as a mortgage, you know, okay. do what the banks are doing. Right. 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 Okay. No, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess I just, kept, I kept going back to when I, you know, when we were looking for, for tenants for a rental and all the due diligence that I did to, you know, to make sure we actually got good tenants, which was a lot. So I'm trying to think like, okay, so you, 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 I guess you had to do all that kind of work, you know, where you're checking their employment history, their credit, all these details, uh, to, you know, talking to them, talking to their yeah. employer. Right. And then on top of that, you're also, it's a mortgage. So, you're, you're not only screening the person, you're also screening the property itself too. So I was like, oh my goodness, this sounds like hours and hours and hours and no, like no, days of work, not, basically. Uh, but if and the bank's helping you with that, then that's... They take care of everything. Okay, okay, yeah. gotcha. Literally, I would say, if I spend two hours on one of these, it's because it's I'm like being very, very diligent. And all of this happens at home in my fuzzy slippers. Okay, okay, that's different. Not for, <laughs> I, was, I was picturing like a week of just like, you know, playing detective. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. Because I'm like, think of rental cool. screening. Times two. That's what I was. That's what I had in my mind. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> then may- it allows you know my investments to really start to grow at an exponential rate. And what I should mention is with the rates that I've that I've mentioned to you, there are no sort of fees that are included in that. So you know when you've got like a uh, a fund that you're invested in and it looks like you get five percent return really after fees, it's like three and a half. This is in fact when I say fifteen or eleven, that's exactly what ends up in my bank account. Any legal fees and anything associated with putting this together the borrow pays for on top of that oh, okay okay gotcha okay mm-hmm. no that's yeah that's really interesting i didn't uh hmm. yeah that's something to think about <laughs> lots of options yeah <laughs> yeah no that's really and just total uh side question so you, you mentioned obviously you're doing a lot of research on the properties themselves finding out what their actual value is that kind of thing how did you do comparative market analysis on your properties because I know in the US they have so many sites that you can like the information is so much more freely available but I find mm-hmm. in Canada it's so much more restrictive right like the MLS has this gigantic monopoly 
and it's hard to find actual sales. I mean, yeah, you can get listings, but to get actual sale data, you know, like final price sold, how do you get those numbers? That is such a good question. Okay, so there's a magical answer here. If you have a really good mortgage broker, they have access to a report that's called a pervy report. That's P-U-R-V-I-E-W. And a pervy report is almost like an automated version of that. It Mm -hmm. will pull the comparable sold, both the public listings as well as the private ones that realtors can't get from MLS. It could show you um, how much equity is in the property, what's been registered on it, what's been the appreciation in the market, and it's all done in an automated way so it's in most provinces in Canada um, but it's a really really great tool that you just let your mortgage broker know you need you're looking for the purview report for a specific address they can pull it for you like instantly so do they basically get access to all the info that an agent would have in the MLS too, like pictures of the property, yes. all this, all the specs, all of that. They have access yep, to. Yep. All of that would be. They may not have as many pictures, right. um, but I don't know much the pictures really okay. are important. Um, but yeah, it's got all of the specs, all of the details, and like even a lot more information that a realtor is going to get for you in comparables sold because it'll also tell you, you know, when was it bought, how much was the mortgage, things like that as well. Very, oh, that's that's very mm-hmm. interesting. I don't know about yeah. that. Yeah, hmm. and your, your mortgage broker, I mean, especially if it's someone who's really good, they've got access. I mean, they get a subscription for the year. I don't know, maybe it's a few bucks for them to do a pull, but they're, they do them for me all the time and you just have to know to ask for it. And if you ask a mortgage broker and they're like, what's a purview report? Then get on your mortgage broker. <laughs> Run. <laughs> <laughs> that's then the, you that's the clue. I'll one who's like really good. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's the thing. If they, if they look at you like a deer in headlights, then you're like, oh, maybe I should look chop around for a mortgage broker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, that, no, that's that's really interesting, and that makes oh, that makes total sense because yeah, I mean, they're obviously mortgage brokers are obviously uh, you know anybody dealing with the mortgage itself is going to want that due diligence to make sure that before they issue a loan that they know what the property is worth roughly so obviously they need access to all those stats uh so yeah no that, that makes total sense oh so smart. <laughs> Most people don't even know to ask for it. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did like I yeah, I mean I've done so for much. your next rental property, yeah, I've, I don't know, like I've done so much reading and and this, and this never came up. And I think too, because a lot of this stuff is like US based, right? And it's uh, yeah. like when when you read about real estate type things, and so cause I'm guessing this is kind of, I'm guessing US has their own version of it, right? But they're I find that it's it's so much different there because they have companies where the data is just so much more readily available for everyone. Yeah. Um, well, that's a really good one to get a lot yeah. of co- cohesive. Yeah. Uh, information about the property at just a couple clicks. Very, very cool. No, thanks for sharing that. That was, oh, I was like, you're talking about comparables. I'm like, how did you get this data? Because I've, I've been hungry for this data for so long. And I... <laughs> I'll hook you up. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Um, okay, no, that sounds good. So let's uh, let's shift gears a bit. So we're, we're talking about investing a lot, uh, investing in real estate a lot. But let, let's talk about kind of the other side of real estate. If you're actually buying a home, not as an investment, but just for personal use. Uh, so if someone, let's say, is a first-time home buyer, how do they know if it's a good time to actually enter the real estate market? What kind of analysis should they be doing? Okay, I love this question because I get it from first-time home buyers all the time. And the answer, in my opinion, is that if you're a first-time home buyer, you're not going to try to time the market. 
This is about your life, you know? People always say to me, oh, I should have bought last year or two years ago or four years ago. That's kind of always what they say. And then they say, you know, what's going to happen in the next six months? And the honest truth is you or I do not have a crystal ball. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the market. But, you know, when it's time for you to buy your house because you are sick of renting, you're at the point where you've got enough of a down payment, your credit's in good shape, you know, maybe you're you're getting married and you want to live with your life partner um, that's really the time to buy a property that you are going to live in, you know, for yourself. At the end of the day, you know, markets have appreciated like crazy over the last few years. And we have people walking around saying like, oh, my property is worth all this much. I've got so much money. But the reality is the money is inside your property. There's not much you can do with it. And if you sell your property, you're going to need to spend it to buy your next one. Right. So, you know, whether it's, you spend or save an extra five or 10 or 20,000 when you buy your place in the grand scheme of things is not going to make a major difference. So I always tell first time home buyers, don't be so worried about the market and focus more about, is it the right time for you to make this lifestyle shift? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cause yeah. And so, I mean, how, what, what I find it, it's interesting, right. When it comes to that, because it's, it's very different than if you're looking for investment real estate, I think, right? Like you're looking for a lot of different things because you're not, you're not actually going to be living in those properties. So you're looking at a lot more kind of the numbers, the mechanics, you're looking at as an investment. So you could invest in in a property that you necessarily wouldn't ever want to live in, but that's actually still a perfect property for somebody else that's, you know, in a different situation, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, So I think when it comes to first time home buyers, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't worry about the market. I would figure out, is it the right time for you to make this shift? Mm-hmm. When it comes to investing, yeah, absolutely. You want to look at what's happening with the market. And especially you want to think about like, what strategy are you doing? Are you doing like fix and flips? You know, like those great TV shows that we watch 30 minutes, you know, where everything goes from disaster <laughs> to like magnificent, right? You only want to do that if the market's going up, right? Right, right. Yeah. So if you're, if you're looking to buy and hold, whether it's a, a multi-unit or something like that, then the timing of the market may be better or more important. So like, for example, it's not even necessarily in the way that people may think, because if the market's going down, that may be a good time to buy something that's a multi-unit that you're going to hold for the long run. Also, you know, when I think about real estate investing, I never suggest that people invest solely for the purpose of appreciation. If your property's not cash flowing for Mm -hmm. you every single month, once you've taken in maintenance and vacancy, again, run. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not investing. That's hoping and praying. Right. Right. Yeah. That's how a lot of, uh, (laughs) a lot of people get into trouble because, oh, look how much it's been, these condos have been going up over year over year. Let's just get it. And, you know, yeah. even though we're, you know, cash flow negative a few hundred bucks every month, let's it'll be fine. And then, yeah. <laughs> and, then and then you get, you know, you get a few dozen people like that and uh, <laughs> things can get pretty nasty pretty quick. So, um, yeah. yeah, for sure. So how does, so that's kind of for first time home buyers. If you're, what if you're not a first time home buyer, you're just, you know, looking to maybe move uh, to a kind of a different kind of house. Would you say the same rules apply as a first time home buyer or is it a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, if you're selling your property, if the market's up, you're going to sell your property for more, but it's going to cost you just as much to get into your next place. So, Mm. you know, when you're moving from one place to another, what's happening in the market is really not that important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess the only exception I can think of top of my head would be if, let's say, you're in Toronto, let's say, and you're, you know, you want to move to, I don't know, some rural area or like, you know, you're retiring. So you're like, oh, I'm going to move to, I don't know, some... A far, yeah. a far out part in Halifax, you know, where the, or, you know, or sorry, not Halifax, Nova Scotia or something, you know, something <laughs> like that, where, you know, the land is, is maybe just cheaper or something like that. And then, you know, you're selling 
from you know at a high, let's say in the Toronto market, and then going to an area where it's just a lot cheaper to buy the land. Uh, I guess then maybe it would make a difference. Yeah, I yeah. mean, if you're looking to change markets, sorry, I was assuming that they were staying in the same yeah, market because yeah. most people don't like you know move to another city. But yeah, if you are most people just move from Toronto to Nova Scotia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you yeah. go. Um, then it may make sense that you sell when the market's a little bit hotter, so you can get more money. Again, like if you're looking to sell because you want to start renting, I mean, I don't know. I know some people who have done that, especially in the Toronto market in the last year. Um, they had bought property and it significantly appreciated. They're like, it's never going to be this hot again. They sold it and started renting in the downtown core. So, Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, there there are some some definite nuances. But I'm assuming for the average person, the average family who's you know living in a city, they've got work, they've got school, and they're just looking to move to another property. You know, if your property is worth more because the market's super hot awesome, but it's going to cost you just as much to buy your next place. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to be able to, to really take advantage of that. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about is um, we kind of been hearing in the news about how crazy the markets have been and that there's even been cases where some buyers needed to walk away from properties that they've purchased. Can you explain what happened in those scenarios and basically how can, if you're a home buyer, how can you avoid this kind of problem? Yeah, we've been hearing a lot of this in the news, unfortunately, and it makes makes my heart break every time I, I hear one of these scenarios. But essentially what has been happening is when somebody has gone in and they've put in an offer and they've either had no conditions or they've already removed their conditions, but the lender hasn't completed the appraisal. If the appraisal has come in lower than um, what they were in fact in- expecting, then the home buyer is responsible to make up the difference between um, what the value is that they put the offer in to pay at and the value that the lender is giving them the mortgage oh, at. So even if they're putting 20% down, they're now only getting an 80% mortgage of the appraised value, which is much lower. And so with the market rapidly decreasing um, just in purchase price. I mean, we're still up year over year, so like nobody should have a heart attack. Um, But with prices significantly decreasing from what they were maybe a couple months ago, um, people who didn't do their proper due diligence didn't get to a place where they finished their appraisal before they removed conditions. Um, This is when they're like, oh shoot, I owe an extra 50,000 or 100,000 to try to close on this property that I wasn't expecting. I don't have that kind of money. And so people are trying to, to walk away. And so, you know, there's been a lot in the news about kind of lawsuits and, and all of this that, that is in fact happening. But this is actually a really easy thing to avoid. And what people don't realize mostly is when you get your pre-approval from your mortgage broker or your financial institution up front, they have done their due diligence and they have approved you to get the mortgage. They haven't necessarily approved the property that you're buying. So just because you have an approval letter doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a financing condition. And people should never lift their financing condition until they have a firm commitment from the lender that the financing is a go. And in order for them to do that, in many instances, they need to do the appraisal. Mm -hmm. So while you may be approved, the property itself is not approved. And that's how we're finding ourselves in in the situation that we've been hearing in the news. Interesting. Because, yeah, like when you go to your bank, you could be pre-qualified or pre-approved by just saying, in both of those scenarios, it's just you're that it's it's you the person that are like if you have pre approval you're approved not necessarily the property. Um, interesting. So you don't actually yeah. remove the f- okay. So that's why you're saying you never you never 
you, you, you don't make remove sure the financing up, yeah. condition. Yeah. And until the, the lender has the property, said, yeah, they've signed yeah, off on everything's it. good on the property side and your side and you're good to go. Gotcha. And that's gotcha. kind of the standard way to do it. And I think part of why we're seeing this issue is because we were in such a hot market for so long that mm -hmm. people were thinking like, oh, I'm pre-approved right. and we've never run into this issue because the value of property has been going up and up and up. This right. is sort of the first time in a long time we're seeing that the value can actually go in the other direction. Yeah. No, it's really interesting because, yeah, I remember uh... – I mean, like when we bought our houses, it was, to me, it was always, of course, I'm putting in a condition for financing and home inspection. It's like a no brainer. I would never, no, I would never not do that. Uh, and then, you know, and then I remember I was, uh, you know, markets have obviously changed and during kind of the, when everything was really hot and, and people were just overbidding and all this kind of stuff was happening. It was like, well, if you put a condition for no financing, or if you do put a condition for financing and home inspection, you're probably not going to get the property because yeah. there's like three people behind you willing to buy the property with no conditions. And that was, which was just, you know, like to me, that was just crazy. But it's like, if you want the house, you, some people were basically forced to do they're that. To do. And so yeah. that I can see how that created, you know, this kind of a, problem where it became it, it was it's scary though because I, I remember you know reading so much about it when i was first kind of getting into real estate investing and it was always like you always have a condition for financing inspection like no exceptions it was that was like the, one of the most recurring themes was <laughs> you always always have this and then i'm hearing people not doing that because and then they're you know and oh i lost out on my dream property because i i put those conditions in so it's interesting what what the how things change, right? As the markets get crazy, uh, yeah, who, who knew absolutely. it would get this cra this uh, competitive, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, okay. No, well, thanks for explaining that. No, that's really that's really interesting, and I think a lot of people don't uh, don't know that. So that I think that's a really good um, a, a good a good tip that could save someone a ridiculous amount of money because you'd basically lose your deposit, right? If you walked away from the property, if you got in that situation, you walked away, you'd lose it, right? Well, not only would you lose the deposit, but you could be sued by the actual seller, right? Um, for for damages for, you know, if it takes them a while to sell it for the difference. Um, I mean, they're very hard to follow up on, but mm -hmm. nobody needs that kind of, of headache. Stress, right? yeah, so yeah. make sure you're putting in a financing condition. And even for people who are putting it in, like, do not lift that condition until you have 100% confirmation mm -hmm. from your lender that they've done any and all of their due diligence, which can include an appraisal to say that they are going to give you the mortgage of the size that you think you're going to get. So you don't have to come up with extra money to close. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause yeah, I mean the seller could say, well, yeah, we, we're keeping your deposit, but you basically tied up our property during the prime real estate selling season. Now it. it's like December, it's going to be much tougher to sell it. We, we're not going to be able to sell at a price anymore. So we're going to sue you for damages now. And now you're, and now you're in this legal battle. And have a basically and it could include holding costs and legal fees oh, and yeah. on and on and on and and what a nightmare and all someone's oh, trying yeah. to just buy a house right yeah yeah <laughs> very scary wow. to buy your first house I'll tell you that much <laughs> well especially when you hear things like this right but uh, but like you said that one kind of uh, tip there can can help you prevent that situation so that's uh, I'm glad you mentioned that um, mm. okay awesome so uh, speaking of kind of mistakes and how to avoid them what are some of the more other some of the common mistakes that you see first time home buyers make. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of mistakes, but I'll give you like a top three. Um, the first one I would say is not leaving enough money for the closing costs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people putting a lot of money into the down payment, but not realizing, you know, how much the land transfer cost is, how much their legal fees are going to be, um, if there's adjustments on the property. So let's say that the seller prepaid their um, 
the, the property tax for the entire year, you may be responsible for paying them back. You know, there could be quite a few adjustments and the closing costs can be far more significant than somebody may expect. So making sure you've got some extra money as a bit of a buffer and working with your mortgage broker up front to say like, what, what are you anticipate the closing costs to be as well as talking to your lawyer to get an estimation from their end? Cause they, they look at some of the different numbers and just make sure that there are no surprises when it comes mm-hmm. to closing. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great tip. I remember just from my own personal experience, we had kind of had, we were really happy that we had left a big buffer for that. Cause I remember we, like in the last house we moved into, it was, we moved in, everything seems good. But then when we, we discovered that there was actually some electrical issues uh, and initially, you know, when, when the home inspector said, he looked over it, he said, oh, you know, yeah, it's like a couple hundred dollar fix, no big deal. But then when we actually had, so we're like, okay, fine, we'll just fix this once we close on the property. And yeah. then the property closed, we actually had a professional electrician come in to fix it. And he basically said, oh, the, actually, this is a bigger issue than you guys, you know, that what your home inspector made it out to be. It's not going to be a couple hundred dollars. There's actually some pretty big issues here. It could actually start a fire. So it was something that the home inspector actually, uh, it's not like he like totally overlooked the issue because we found it yeah. you know, thanks to him. But he, because he's not a professional electrician, he didn't know kind of all these caveats that actually, there, you know, this it's actually going to be more expensive to fix than what you think. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, thankfully, you know, we had, we made sure we had a huge buffer just in case things like that happen, especially because we were moving into an older house. Uh, but yeah, so I find that too, right? Like, yeah, there's the, the transfer cost, the, the the lawyer, all of that, but also kind of any unsuspecting repairs, right? Like what if your furnace breaks down a, yep. a week after moving into the property and it's December, right? Um, you're going to have to fork up quite a bit of money, right? So yeah. No, yeah I, just I'm, make I'm sure you've got that. buffers is a big one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the second mistake that I, I see people making all the time is the way they select their professionals, especially the realtor that they're going to work with. So most people select their realtor the same way they select a restaurant. Like, oh, <laughs> I walked into an open house and this girl smiled at me or like, I don't need uh, I don't need to interview anybody. My sister's best friend or my uncle's business partner knows a realtor. Um, this person is going to negotiate your single biggest purchase in your life. And, you know, if you're not interviewing them up front to find out their personality, their negotiation style, what's the work they're going to do for you, um, it can cost you a lot of money. And, you know, a lot of people feel like, oh, I don't need to know how to buy a home. My realtor is going to help me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, not all realtors are created equal. Some of them can be incredible and, you know, they can be your real estate guardian angel. But there's many, many out there who, you know, won't necessarily behave in in the way that you expect or really serve you in the way that, that you deserve to be to be treated when they're when they're helping you buy this big purchase. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, then I had, the last yeah. one. You got a question? Oh, no, I was going to say, when I, whenever, uh, when we use an agent in the past, I had a whole page of just questions to drill them on before hiring them because yeah, I, I remember doing that. You're basically hiring them to do like a negotiation sales job for you, right? right so could right. you imagine somebody or some corporation hiring you for sales jobs without interviewing you, without asking you your stats, without asking you, you know, about your previous experience? Are you doing this full time? Whereas, you know, we're, we're quite comfortable just saying like, oh, she smiled at me at an open house. I think we're going to get along. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. um, the last big mistake that I see home buyers making is, you know, we all know that 
houses are really expensive and qualify for a big mortgage is really tricky. Um, so lots of first-time home buyers, especially millennials, have their family helping them out, whether it's with a financial gift or helping them qualify for a mortgage. And, you know, what I see often is, you know, if the millennial is getting a financial gift from their family and they haven't maxed out their RSPs, they don't think that they could take that gift and put it in their RSPs to get the tax benefit and then use the money. Um, so your RSPs, for the first-time home buyer's plan has to be in there for 90 days before you take it out. But lots of people don't even think of, oh, I can put it in there to get the tax benefit first. As well as if your family is helping you qualify for the mortgage, it's really important to have a conversation with your lawyer about how you're going to be registered on title. So, you know, if you don't have the conversation and it's, you know, your name and your mom's name or your dad's name, the lawyer may just assume and put you on title 50-50. Um, whereas in reality, if they're not going to be living in the house, you'd be made way better off with a 99% being yours and 1% being theirs. Because when you sell the property in the future, it's your primary residence. So you don't have to pay capital gains, but your family is not living in your house. They're living in their own house. And so, you know, if they're put on title 50, 50, when you sell the property in the future, they are responsible for paying tax on the capital gains on half of that property. Mm, interesting. I don't know that part. Awesome. Yeah. That's a really good, yeah. Like especially for, like you said, for first-time home buyers, that's a pretty, that's a that's a huge one actually. Yeah, especially you know the housing prices being what they are. Yeah, totally. And so you know, if you just meet your lawyer for the first time, like right after you've got an accepted offer, and you don't have a relationship with them where they know exactly what's happening, they may just see, oh, two people on the mortgage, no problem. Two people on title, and it can be you know, a conversation that's completely sideswiped. Whereas if you know about this, you know to ask about it, you build your relationship with your lawyer up front, they can actually help you significantly in your purchase. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great one. And I can see yeah, some lawyers, they'll just do kind of by default, right? Like, oh, this many people, we split it evenly. They, you know, they've done it so much now that that's probably just the default exactly. thing they go to, right? So you kind of need to raise that flag and say... Oh, hold on. <laughs> hold on there. Hold on this there. Yeah, yeah. Please change your templates or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, that's awesome. And then uh, no, so thank you. Those are really valuable, and I think those were like some common ones that you just see posted everywhere. Those are actually some pretty unique ones that. Uh, and, and I mean, the the difference they can make are obvious is obviously significant. So, uh, thanks for sharing those ones. And then let, let's talk about price a little bit here. So, uh, what do you have any suggestions and then tips for uh, basically to get a good price when you're trying to purchase a property? Yeah. um, And actually, you kind of touched on this maybe in an inadvertent way is that um, one of the things that I think is a great tip that most people should be doing is when you do a home inspection, make sure you get a home inspector who will actually a home inspector who will actually generate quotes for you. So in your example, if you had your home inspector generate quotes and he had said, I'm not quite sure about the electricals and you brought somebody else in and you were able to have a quote generated up front that said, hey, the electrical wiring needs to be redone. It's going to cost me $10,000. You go back to the seller and say, look, I have this hard, concrete, very recent, relevant data to say there's $10,000 of maintenance here. You know, can you either A, repair it yourself before you sell to me, B, reduce the purchase price, or C, I have the option of walking away. And most properties need some level of repair and your inspector can say to you, oh, this repair is going to need to be done inside of the first year. Um, then you can go back to the seller and really use that in negotiation technique. Even if you've already got your uh, offer accepted at a confirmed price, you know, at that point in time, if you haven't lifted your conditions, you still have the opportunity to go back and say, before I lift the conditions, can you modify the price? Yeah, before, whenever we bought a house, uh, that, it was, that was always a... Uh 
or bought or sold a house, there was always that home inspection condition. And so I kind of got used to that always being part of the negotiating process. So it's like some people, you know, they, they agree on a price and it's like, oh, celebration, we're going to own the house. And then I'd always kind of like, ah, I'm not excited yet because the home inspection's still coming. And that's basically, you know, negotiation part two. <laughs> is... Or it could be the breaking point. Like actually could, one of yeah. my first investment properties um, that uh, I had a home inspection on and I show up and like the inspector is up on the roof. He like swings down like Tarzan and he goes, Lemore, you best not be buying this property. I was like, why? I was all excited that I had this great property. He was like, he brings me around to the back and he shows me this crack that I'm like, okay, what am I looking at? He's like, that's a $60,000 crack in the foundation. <laughs> I recommend you walk away. I was like, uh, okay, thank you. That was like <laughs> the best thing that had ever happened to me. So, yeah. you know, inspection is really, really critical. For sure. Yeah, no, that, I, I, I agree. And I, I think the tip you gave about to make, to make sure you really screen your real estate agent, make sure you actually get a good one, interview them thoroughly. I, I think the same rule really applies to the home inspector too. Uh, sure. you, you, I find you almost <laughs> want someone that real estate agents don't like because they will find things in properties that prevent you from closing the, the home. <laughs> like I remember there was one that we found and I remember the one person was telling me that they've used them and they said that, you know, if you ask real estate agents what they think of this person, they'll say they don't like him. And it's because he's so thorough and you'll find so many things that he might actually like break the deal. Uh, you know, and so I'm but kind of know, like, that's, that's who you exactly, want on your team though. That's exactly who you need. That's exactly yeah. who you need. And, yeah. you know, also important to note that like the realtor wants to close the deal because they also want to get paid, right? So I'm not right. saying that they're all evil or they want you to buy terrible properties, but you know your realtor gets paid a percentage of what your price is. So the higher your price, the higher their commission is, and they want to close the deal and, and move on to their next client. So right. um, you, know, you really are the only one who is looking out for your very best interest in all aspects of buying your property. That's true. And that, yeah, that, <laughs> that still bugs Let's be honest me. here. Yeah, I know. And, and that still bugs me about kind of the, the real estate industry and how it works. It's like, so you're an agent, you're you're supposed to represent me and have my best interest at heart and all of that. And you sign all this, work, you know, paperwork saying, oh, yeah, you know, I've got, you know, they've got your back and they're going to look out yeah. for you and all this stuff. And, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, if you get if they if you pay more for the property, they get paid more. Uh, yep. And so it, it's kind of like, yeah, the paper says one thing, but they have a monetary incentive to do the complete opposite. And I don't know, that just bugs me so much. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really frustrating because no, it's the I opposite. Hate. Like anything, you know, it's like when you know, in the investment in, in the investment industry too, right? It's like when you're looking for, okay, what should I invest in? And then you go ask a person uh, what what you should what you should buy. And then they recommend something because they're getting, you know, like a commission the on the back commission. end, right? So there's a conflict of interest. And then obviously, you, you so everything they say is now suspect. Uh, well, you know, it's like the same things applying to the real estate profession. So I don't know, that drives me bananas. No, <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm venting I, here. <laughs> no, totally fair. And it's actually, I think, the reason why, um, particularly in the last six months when the market started turning, mm -hmm. I've gotten so many phone calls and emails from first-time home buyers just saying like, Okay, can you help me? Can you can you give me advice? Because nobody in the process is giving me unbiased information. Right, exactly. My realtor, my mortgage broker, my lawyer, they all make money even if I make a mistake, even if I buy the wrong property. So exactly. Yeah. Really looking for unbiased advice. It's basically buyer beware, you know, to the extreme. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I know what you mean. And this isn't like to knock real estate agents. I mean, there's no, some no, amazing real estate agents. It's more so uh, just the way that the business and the systems and the compensation structure the way it's set up um and you know 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just it shouldn't be like that, right? It's kind of like if you hire a lawyer, right? You're paying them good money to have your best interest at heart and they're yep. supposed to look out for you and they've got your back. Uh, and, and that's that's the way it should be, right? It shouldn't be that, oh, you pay your... If, if your lawyer makes you less <laughs> makes you less money because you overpaid for the house, they get more money. I mean, it shouldn't be like that. So, Well, uh, with lawyers, I actually recommend um, that you use a lawyer that's a flat fee. Um, there are lawyers out mm-hmm. there that will do real estate as flat fee and then you can ask them as many questions as you want without thinking like, gosh, every time I send them an email or I call them, it's costing me $300 for the question. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I've always done the flat fee thing and I, I also always did the lawyer because a lot of times, you know, the real estate agent would, you know, they have lawyers that they can recommend to you that mm-hmm. they, or they usually have like a go-to lawyer that they will recommend to you to make things, you know, quote unquote easier. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and once again, that maybe it's, to, everything's all good and above board, but it automatically just creates a conflict of interest, right? Because if they're buddies, right, and they you know help each other out, that kind of a thing. So now you know the I don't know the, now the lawyer. Well, if if the lawyer says no, you shouldn't. There's an issue with this deal. Bringing up all these issues, well, you know that could strain the relationship with their you know realtor buddy, right? So I'm not saying this you know happens all the time or anything, but but once again, it always kind of. You know, you, you, I kind of want them completely separate, right? The lawyer is totally separate, has nothing to do with my real estate agent. They're totally, yeah. you know, they, they work for me, right? They don't they're, they don't work for me, but really they're buddies with the realtor as well who just really, really wants to close the deal. Um, I don't know. That's that's kind of my, that's one of the things that I... <laughs> <laughs> that's your rant for today. <laughs> that's my rant. I know, I know. I'm just, I'm so, I'm so paranoid in that industry just because there's, there's all these financial incentives for, for people to, uh, to make me pay as much as humanly possible and... Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. All right. But yeah, I will stop ranting because this is supposed to be me interviewing <laughs> you. But you're, you're hitting on these sensitive spots and I can't help I can't help myself. And, and I feel that, you know, you're in the real estate thing, so you can relate. And, oh, you know, so I'm like, this. oh, Limor's got a listening ear. Let me vent, please. <laughs> All right. But no, let's let's you know, let's enough enough Cornell talking. Thank you for letting me vent. Um, OK, so that's <laughs> so that's good. Um, so is that is that does that cover that kind of the question? Uh, good yeah. enough, you think, but in terms of the tips yeah. for first-time home buyers? Okay, sounds good. Uh, and then you let, let yeah. So let's talk about your course a bit because you created a course for first-time home buyers. And what made you decide to create this course? Yeah. So I mean, as I just mentioned before, this summer when kind of spring when the GTA market started turning. First-time home buyers started seeing, okay, it's a buyer's market for the first time. The prices are going down just a little bit. And I started getting an absolutely massive influx of phone calls and emails and questions asking about how do I choose a realtor? What does the realtor do? How do I work with them? How does the offer work? How did the mortgage work? You know, what I do with the property taxes? Do I actually need a lawyer? I had one girl say to me, can't my boyfriend just go to the registry office, you know? Um, (laughs) It really, really made me realize that there is no comprehensive um, way for a first time home buyer to get the unbiased, the good, the bad, and the ugly mm-hmm. on how to buy your first house, everything soup to nuts. So really, um, I, I was excited about the opportunity to put something together because I've, I've got nothing to, to gain from which property you buy or don't buy. But, you know, I think that people should be informed on the process and know their options and, and be educated and empowered because this is a massive, massive purchase and it's really exciting, but it is stressful and scary. Mm-hmm. For sure. No, that's awesome. Yeah, the um, just having a one-stop shop to kind of know everything you need to know instead of. Sp- I mean, it's already a very time-consuming and stressful process. 
so the last thing you want to do is, is try to be hunting around uh, from different sources, trying to piece together information to figure out how to do all of it. Because um, you're, you're, you're going to be busy enough just with the whole thing anyway. Um, and I guess this way too, you can really prepare yourself and just save yourself some time. Um, that's awesome. Now, can you can people ask question, yeah, you questions as well in when they sign up for your course in case there's something that comes up? Yep. So it's a six-week online course where mm-hmm. basically explain everything in the process start to finish. They get worksheets and downloadables and checklists and, um, you know, every, every element of the process they're informed about, they understand. And as part of the course, every single week for the six weeks, there's a live Q&A. Um, where on that particular topic and subject matter, we all jump on into uh, like a, an online forum where we're all looking at each other live and, and folks can ask questions about how, in fact, this applies to them and, and you know, any elements of clarification there require. But basically, you know, it empowers folks to understand everything from, you know, types of properties, what's the difference between a condo and a single family home, what's a buyer's market, what's a seller's market. And I've really catered it to anywhere across Canada where I talk about provincial nuances um, and a variety of elements. I really just want people to know the process from start to finish. That's really what I was hearing is they're like from talking to first time home buyers as, as part of designing this course, I interviewed over 50 millennials just to see like, what are they struggling with? And what I kept hearing is like, I'm surprised and caught off guard every step of the way. And it's really, really stressful. So I make sure that I, I've outlined every single element and, you know, they do have the opportunity on a weekly basis to have a discussion in a group setting with me where they can ask questions for clarification. That's awesome. I like how you have the community thing, especially around this particular subject, because it's not like the information never changes either. Like there are there are some things yeah. that there are some fundamental things that don't change, but things come up too, right? Like the government changes the mortgage rules, for example, yep. you know, things of that nature, right? And and just the landscape is continuously evolving. Uh, just you know, with, with with regulations a lot of times, and just other things as well, right? Like whether it's buyers market, sellers market, that kind of a thing, uh, you know, and different kind of techniques people start using, things of that nature. So it's really nice how you have not just a static course, but also sort of that live community component. So when these new things come up, you're kind of, I guess it's safe to say kind of if you're part of this, then you're up to date on the latest things so that you're not caught off guard by something new, like some new strategies or or some new laws or regulations that came into play. Absolutely. And even within like the static courses, uh, the the static components, like I'll be continually making updates. If there's a massive change, a regulation change, you know, I want people to really have all the tools that they need and, and be ready and comfortable to buy their first house. That's fantastic. Yeah, because there's a lot of, you know, good books out there on this kind of subject, but it's like, okay, the book was, pu- it's a great book, but it was published in 1990 and it's specifically, <laughs> and it's like, you know, and it's US based or whatever, or, or yeah. you know, or even if it's Canadian based, it's like from 1990. So, the, you know, th- some things are, are still the same, but some things have changed. And so it's, it's I think this is one of those things where you, you actually need to know kind of, you know, the, the latest things so that you're, because sure. like you said, it's, the, it's your biggest investment, right? Pretty much. So totally. you, you don't want to mess it up. For me, I mean, I'm continually investing in the market. I've got, uh, like, in the real estate market, I've got investments in multiple provinces across Canada. Um, I'm also a, a young gal, so, you know, I'm not talking to folks with a whole lot of jargon. It's kind of like on my YouTube channel every week. Uh, the channel's called Limor, L-I-M-O-R. I post a video every week, and I talk about money in plain English. So this is about how to buy your house um, in plain English from, you know, a, a fellow young millennial who's making it easy and accessible. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And then it's, yeah, it's neat how you actually interviewed the 50 millennials on their 
home buying journey, right? Just to see kind of the common themes, the quite common mm-hmm. questions, common concerns. And I'm, I'm assuming you took that info then and then created sure. your course kind of around that to make sure you, you know, you have, you, that you covered all those kind of main concerns. So, so what are some of the themes that came up when you did your interviews? What are some of the common sort of, you know, fears or misconceptions or, or questions that people have kind of that you realized after interviewing all these people? Yeah, well, I mean, the first question I asked everybody is on a scale of one to 10, what was their confidence level in buying a house so that they'd know what to do, um, you know, when they started their journey? And one is like, you have zero idea. And 10 is like, you could teach a course. And the answer is basically ranged between three and five across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, people were very stressed out. They didn't know what to expect. They felt like the more research they did, the more conflicting information they got. Right. You know, lots of people were like, oh, my realtor is going to teach me. And then in their next breath, they're like, yes, but they make more money off a worse negotiation where I actually pay more exactly what you were saying. Before. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. while they had this sort of hope in the realtor, they were still really nervous. Um, you know, a lot of people said they were relying on their family to help them, but recognize that their parents bought real estate in a very different market. Mm-hmm. Lots of concerns around like, if I take my entire life saving and put in a down payment, how do I ensure that I have enough money to manage the property, to have an emergency fund in case something happens? Um, just a lot of worry and concern and a lot of it's this massive emotional, stressful roller coaster that, you know, they're not really sure how they're going to get through. But, you know, once they jump on, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just a crazy ride until they end up on the other side. And hopefully, you know, there's a lot of hoping that they buy the right place. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And yeah, one thing that I like about this too is that you're also a real estate investor. And I found just from my research kind of over the years is that even when I was buying my homes for personal use, just, you know, primary residence, I would still, I remember trying to read kind of the best practices from real estate investors, because I find these are the guys that, you know, are gals that do this for a living. So they, you know, they know kind of the the right way to do things. Um, so it's really great how you, I find, have that background because you, like real estate is your life basically, right? And not just primary mm-hmm. residence, but investing as well, where kind of the stakes are even, you know, are, are higher usually because it's usually higher dollar amounts too, right? Especially if you're dealing with like multi-unit. Um, so yeah, no, so I, I really think that's great how you you've got that kind of well-rounded approach and you can take hints and tips from both worlds and apply them to this kind of process. So kind of speaking of that, what are some of the tips you have for first-time home buyers that invest, um, tips for first-time home buyers that investors do that home buyers usually don't do? Yeah. So there's one really big one that, that comes to mind for me. Um, and that is actually when you put in your deposit. So in all provinces, except for British Columbia, you actually give your deposit right up front when the offer is accepted. And generally what your realtor will advise you to do is to give as large of a deposit as you possibly can to show the seller how serious you are. Um, But then the deposit is typically then given to the seller's realtor to hold. And um, this can be quite challenging. And in fact, I had one gentleman, a young guy in Toronto who I helped him buy a house, uh, his first place privately because he'd had a massive disaster with this. So, you know, when he was buying, he was looking for a place where he wanted to have uh, a lot of light and he wanted to have a lot of quiet because he was living in a basement apartment for a very long time and didn't have either of those. And so when he found the place that he thought he really liked, um, you know, was asking the seller's realtor about it. There was a construction site next door where basically they, the realtor had said they were building like a low rise, um, or I think it was, uh, like a, like a low rise strip mall. Um, but you know, when he put his deposit, he put in $25,000 
which is a pretty hefty deposit, and it was given to the seller's realtor to hold. And then he had one day to lift conditions. So during that time, he got the status certificate of the condo board and had seen that there was, in fact, um, a small lawsuit about somebody who had slipped. And, um, you know, he was trying to find out about that. And so one of the things that he did in trying to find out what was happening with that, and it turns out it was almost closed and finished off. But he reached out to his city councilor and said, like, hey, have you heard about this? What's going on? The city councilor was able to tell him what was happening. But he also said, oh, and by the way, I heard about the low rise being built next door. And the city councilor came back and said, like, oh, that's not a low rise. That's going to be like a massive skyscraper or condo building. So hmm. it was right next door. It would have been crazy noise for years to come during the building, and it would have blocked all of his lights. So he was pretty disappointed because it was not what he wanted. And obviously, I mean, I'm not saying that the realtor was lying. They may not have known. But then he came back to his realtor and said, listen, I got one day to remove this condition. I really don't want to proceed. Like, this is really making me unhappy. And his realtor pushed him, why, why, why? He told his realtor the actual story. Now, in his conditions, he should have been able, the conditions were worded in such a way that it's at the buyer's discretion, and he should have been able to pull out no problem. But his realtor, not that savvy, despite the fact that she's got fancy newsletters and has won lots of awards in the industry. But anyways, um, reached out to the seller's uh, realtor and said, hey, we want to pull out. Ended up telling the seller's realtor why, and because it wasn't part of the condition, the seller decided they didn't want to give him back his deposit. So he's freaking out. Um, He ended up hiring a lawyer to help him get the deposit back. His legal bill was $1,300, and he only got back $20,000 of the $25,000. So it ended up costing him $6,300 because the deposit was held in the realtor's Uh, bank account. Whereas what I do as an investor and what is very common in the investor community is when I put a deposit, I always, always, always have my lawyer hold it for me in trust. That way, if Mm -hmm. I pull out, I get it back right away. No questions asked. And you don't go through this whole rigmarole, which in this instance cost this guy $6,300 for a condo he didn't buy. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a Ooh, that's pretty intense. I feel, uh, I know, I feel right? for the guy. So, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly what I was alluding to before that, you know, in the course, I'm not only conveying things that folks may not know, but I'm also teaching tricks of the trade that investors do on a regular basis that first time home buyers absolutely should. For sure. And I find there's, there's so many of those, like, cause if you, if you read the like, kind of, you know, the blogs or some of these guides out, like these free guides out there, they kind of have this sort of generic help out there which which is great like some of it's good you know but you don't get sort of the really the much more uh, kind of the, the tips that come from actual really savvy investors that you can apply to your own situation when you're buying your, your own home even though it's not like an even though it's for your own primary residence uh so yeah. no i i find there's a lot of things that overlap that just kind of people just don't know about because it's not as common and only kind of people that are in the in the game basically know about them so uh no that's awesome thank you for sharing that so yeah let, let's talk a bit more about the course so who who is it for ideally yeah, so it's for it's for ideally first time home buyers. Um, obviously, if you're not buying, if you're buying like a second home, there's definitely a lot of nuances. But I talk about the first time home buyer plan and lots of elements, um, you know, for, about buying a house. Uh, I would say if if somebody is looking to buy a house inside of the next year, year and a half, it's a great time to take the course. You want to understand everything soup to nuts before you get started and before you are in the process of 
you know, working with realtors and lawyers, you know, I've got interview guides for every single person on your real estate team to make sure that you're asking the right questions to choose the right process uh, or to choose the right person who can, who can guide you through the process. So anybody in Canada who is a first time home buyer, like I said, I've got lots of provincial nuances included in there um, from all of the investments that I do across Canada. But really, if you're, if you're looking to buy a house, you're overwhelmed, you're stressed, let me just give you all of the answers and, and let me help you. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I wish your course was around when I started. Because <laughs> I remember spending just an insane amount of time. Like, like I'm a yeah. really thorough guy. Like I, I research things a lot, uh, kind of maybe excessively at times. And so <laughs> I just remember spending just insane amounts of time just trying to take all the pieces together, learn how to actually do it. And then also just filtering out the, the crap from <laughs> from actual good advice. Because like you said, right? I mean, you could get some like you mentioned that one person, well, oh, my real estate agent is going to teach me everything, but then there might be that conflict of interest there as well, right? So you kind of have to, uh, you kind of have to piece things together, like, okay, this is this advice, but is it biased? Is it unbiased? Is there risk yeah. that it's biased? You know, like there's all these, it's, it's, it's this extra stress and work you have to do to try to piece it all together. So I'm really happy that you, not, not, not only put it all together one course, so it just saves an insane amount of time, um, but also kind of how you applied your, kind of best practices from your investing experience to this. So you get things that you pretty much can't get anywhere else. Um, so no, that's that's awesome. And I like how it's up to date too, right? Because I mentioned that with the regulations changing, it's it's sure. nice to know you're fully informed instead of constantly trying to look for kind of the latest news and oh, did this, did this change? Did this, you know, did they tighten the mortgage rules again? Or, or, you know, what's happening with the interest rates and all these kinds of things you'd have to do constantly be chasing the newest data whereas with in your thing it's like a one-stop shop it sounds like so that's fantastic there you go very cool awesome so where can people find more about you and your course yeah so the course actually divulging all of these secrets is called home purchasing secrets and they can find uh all the information that they need about it on homepurchasingsecrets.com i've actually even got a sneak peek where you can uh get a little bit of an insight on the course itself and a little bit of a of a demo to see if this is in fact the right thing for you um so homepurchasingsecrets.com and you know if they're looking to just find out more about me in general with a name like lee moore i'm very easy to find on the <laughs> internet. I have a YouTube channel called Limor, L-I-M-O-R, and uh, I publish articles very regularly on Limor.money. I'm also on every social media you could possibly find out there. So uh, very easy to, to get in touch with me. That's awesome. No, that, uh, this was a lot of fun, Limor. Thanks. And uh, yeah, well, I'll make sure to put everything in the show notes too. I look forward to talking with you in the future as well. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the episode with Lee Mort. You can check out one of her free webinars and ask her your home buying questions over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash webinar. all one word. And if you're going to be looking into buying your first home within the next year, then I definitely recommend checking out her in-depth step-by-step home buying course made specifically for Canadians where you can have her in your corner during your home buying process. And you can learn more about that by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash estate. Of course, I'd like to give a big thank you to Paytm for sponsoring the show. Don't forget to try out Paytm on your phone or tablet for free and use the promo code BUILDWEALTH, all lowercase one word, when paying your first bill to get a free $10 cash back on that bill. And in addition to that, you can get up to 3% cash back on bills that you pay with the app as opposed to the 0% that you're currently getting at your bank. And you can finally get cash back rewards on all those utility bills, property tax bills, and tuition payments, and others that don't typically accept 
credit cards. Now, as a Build Wealth Canada listener, you'll get that $10 for free. Just go to paytm.ca on your phone or tablet, download the app, and use the promo code BUILDWEALTH, all lowercase, all one word, when making your first bill payment to get that $10 cash back. All right, so that's all for today. A big thank you to our sponsor, paytm.ca. Have a wonderful week and talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 